Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 2. As you're turning your Bibles to our text for this morning, let me just introduce you to the, I think, the thematic purpose of this section, and then maybe press upon you your need to understand it. The Apostle has laid out for us in chapter 1 the command that we walk in a way that's fitting with the gospel of the Lord. And and in another way, you could see that in chapter 3 when he says that, that we're citizens of heaven. There's an expectation that you and I live in such a way that, that our, our days, our money, our relationships, our lives are lived out so that someone can see that our actual values are in line with heaven's values, not this earth's. And that should transform the way we live, the way we think, the way we engage the world. And, and that's kind of cloudy. I mean, I could ask you that question, are you living like a citizen of heaven, and I think a lot of Christians might simply say yes and not really even understand what they're saying yes to. Or the reverse, they would say no because it sounds so like crazy, super Christian-y. Like, so we, we don't even know what that means. And the apostle gives us several examples that we might see how this transforms the lives of people, like real people. And his first example is Jesus, and so that makes me feel, feel even more inadequate at saying, yeah. Right, like, live like a citizen of heaven. And then he gives the example of Jesus, who set aside the glories of heaven, humbled himself, became man, and you're thinking, okay, I can't do that. Then he gives more kind of normal people examples, not just Jesus, but I think part of the point in proving the case of Jesus is if Jesus himself, was willing to abandon the glories of heaven and humble himself. And the result of that was he is given a name above every name, that pursuing heaven's goals, humbling ourselves in this life, becoming sacrificial and obedient to the Father no matter what, is the wisest, best investment you can possibly make, bar none. It is the best path. It is the right path, and and proving it with Jesus should encourage us to be able to latch on and follow that path, but we're still left with this kind of, yeah, but that's Jesus feel. And so then he gives Timothy, and now this morning we're going to look at Epaphroditus' example. And the way Paul um, puts these in his letter seems fairly natural because he's using them as not only examples, but he's explaining what's going on in their lives because it's relevant to the Philippian church. So when you look in chapter 2, verse 25, he begins explaining about Epaphroditus. And my understanding is this the only place in the New Testament we would see Epaphroditus talked about. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you. And has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice. And seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If you jump over to chapter 4 real quickly, it'll help you understand who Epaphroditus is. Look in verse 16. It says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek that fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So how does Epaphroditus get to be in Paul's life as answered in chapter 4? He's a messenger sent by the church in Philippi some 800 miles to where Paul is in Rome in order that he might give Paul a gift. I think the assumption would be that gift is not, you know, an iPad. It's probably money. And in the, the social context of the day, Paul's probably under house arrest, which means he can't leave the house he's in, which means he can't earn money, which means he's needing supply of food because the Romans wouldn't give you that. They would keep you under house arrest and your provisions, your supply, your food, your needs are on you and those who care about you. So the Philippians, knowing that Paul is unable to provide for his own needs, probably send Epaphroditus with a lot of money. And probably there's other co-workers with Epaphroditus who when they get there and Epaphroditus is sick, they return to Philippi, and you'll see that in the text before us. That's kind of the, the, the framework in which Paul explains to them what's happening. Epaphroditus has been ill. I'm sending him back to you. He's recovered. He has done fantastic work in ministering, so receive him and welcome him back. So how does this relate to us? Well, if we put it in more generic context, the apostle is a missionary of the gospel of Christ. Epaphroditus, as far as we can tell, is simply a faithful follower of Christ who is sent as a missionary to encourage, or is sent as a servant to encourage the missionaries. And now Paul is going to explain how valuable this is for him and the church. So let me just assume that you and I find some similarity with a figure in this passage. Either God wants you to be a missionary or to use you to support missionaries or to stay in a local church that encourages and supports the people who do the missions. Or maybe you could say spread the gospel. If I use this phrase, because I think it's, it's embedded right in that phrase that he's a fellow worker. A missionary is a worker, which implies they do work. It's like one of those ugly words we try to avoid as much as possible, work. But if we're to use that, I think it's a more generic way because Epaphroditus doesn't seem to be a missionary, that the Apostle Paul recognizes that an Epaphroditus he is a fellow worker. That Paul does something for all of us in terms of explaining a theology of missions that says 
you and I should be part of missionary work without actually having to be the sent ones. By that, I mean the ones who stay sent. Because Epaphroditus was sent and then did what? Returned home. And Paul says this is really valuable. In fact, when you look at how Paul considers this whole context, both the church in Philippi, that's still in Philippi, the messengers who come to encourage him, and he himself are all workers together for the cause of Christ. So there's a theology that I think we need to get when it comes to missions and church work is that we are partners. And we are called to be partners who labor together for the work of Christ. Maybe I can just frame it this way in terms of your need, my need. Sometimes we see people go through and we look at them as kind of heroes and agents that are so far beyond us or more gifted than us. And maybe even jealousy, you're like, man, I wish I could be like him, but I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm just some schlub stuck here in Bakersfield. I'll never be a missionary like that guy or that woman. God, but I really want to do something for missions, so what should I do? I guess I'll just sit home and pray for the missionaries. There is a troubling concern that I would have in that type of statement. That somehow you think staying home means you're not involved and obligated to be involved in missions. So as you look at this text, let me just suggest to you all, you are here in this text somewhere, represented by these figures. You have an obligation then, not only to see that you're in this text, but to respond appropriately to what this text tells you. That is, you and I should recognize that God's grace flows to those who are called to Christ, the elect across the the borders of our country, maybe outside of the doors of your home, that God spreads his grace through his agents. It'd be a lot easier if God just saved them. You know what I mean? Like, like why couldn't God just miraculously redeem a billion people in India? That is not his plan. I don't have a good answer why. I can tell you like big theological terms, like it glorifies his name to use agents like us. I know that that is true because the Bible says it's true, but I don't know the whys of it. I just know that's how, it does, that, how God does it. God doesn't miraculously save my children. God puts me in the household and calls me to evangelize my children, and that's how, if they are saved, God will save them, through the evangelization of the church of the people that it's in contact with. So let me say that again. God's grace flows to the community, to other believers, through his agents. Therefore, we should recognize that I have partnership with one another and I'm obligated to love and labor with them. Love them and labor with them. Or I could say it this way. We need to recognize that God is honored and his grace spreads through mutual partnerships of labor and love. Look again at this text. How does Paul honor Epaphroditus? How does he look at him? He says, my brother. He says he's a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Now, who is Epaphroditus? He's kind of a nobody. I don't mean to be unkind to Epaphroditus, but he's like this figure that doesn't have hardly any New Testament impact in terms of what we see in the, the record of Scripture. He is sent on an 800-mile walk 
Now, he has to travel by foot or perhaps by horse or something like that, carrying a lot of money. So apparently he's trustworthy and maybe like tough. I mean, because if you're carrying a lot of money and anyone finds out about it, you want the guy to be able to protect the money. And he probably has some, some companions with him. And Paul says that his ministry of coming and giving that to Paul and caring for Paul, maybe with words of encouragement and, and collaborative prayer and ministry along with Paul while he's visiting with him, that alone qualifies him to be brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. And I think sometimes what we've done is we've made Christian ministry this, this high calling by which most of us are excluded. If we're to put this in today's context, you can imagine us sending a godly couple over to Africa or perhaps India to encourage one of our missionaries and asking them to stay a couple months and to take a financial gift and the missionary saying, you are fellow laborers and soldiers and brothers and sisters in Christ because of your ministry to us. And you might respond like, ah, oh, I'm nobody. I just got a plane ticket. That's, that's precisely the point is, is there's times where we are sitting on the sideline doing very little because we think God expects us to be so highly and hyper-qualified that we do nothing for Christ. And Paul ennobles Epaphroditus. He's a fellow worker. He's a soldier. Now notice the, the participation words, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. He sees Epaphroditus as in the trenches of missionary work and sacrifice and labor with him. So maybe God has not called you to go and stay in India or go and stay in Japan. Maybe you should consider that God wants you to strengthen those that are there as your missionary work. Because that's part of what's happening. Is this, this care and mutual partnership, this labor, is not done in isolation by the Apostle Paul. But that's not, that's not only where he stops. He lets them know that they're still connected to Epaphroditus too. That is, he is a messenger and their sent one representing them to Paul. Look again in the text in verse 25. He says, I'm sending you Epaphroditus. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. But he's your messenger. He's the, one, he's, the actual word there is apostolos. He's, he's your apostle to me. He's the one you commissioned and sent. He represents you. And notice that next word, he's your minister to me. That word ministry there is the word we get liturgy from. It has the idea of a sacred task. Priests would do this in their temple work. I mean, some temple work is just work. And some of it's like worship work. You know, you're working in the assembly, helping them praise God directly. But some of it's just work. And he's calling upon the church to recognize Epaphroditus is a noble character who deserves honor and should be received with respect because of his partnership in missionary work. And you can only imagine Epaphroditus going like, me? I haven't done much of anything. 
Have you ever not done something because you thought it was insignificant? Have you ever thought, yeah, they really don't care about that. I won't, I wouldn't send them a thank you note. They wouldn't, they know I'm thankful. Have you ever not encouraged someone by telling them what a blessing they were to you because you just didn't think it would matter? Just didn't think they would care that you were encouraged by them? Remember, uh, probably about eight to ten weeks ago, a church member came up to me and I'd asked for prayer for something. He just said, hey, I, I just want to let you know. And he just, probably in two sentences, just really richly encouraged me by reminding me of some things that God had done in his life. It's the type of thing, like, I think most people wouldn't have thought to do. I know I wouldn't have. And the Apostle Paul wants the Philippians to know this is big ministry done in a small way. I think of going 800 miles by foot and carrying a bag of money and risking my life and almost dying as big ministry. But I want you to consider maybe from Philippians or maybe even Epaphroditus' point of view. You go to help Paul. You get sick. Paul might have to minister to you and nurse you back to health and spend the money that you brought for him to help you get back to health. And then you get sent back to your city that sent you with your tail between your legs because you couldn't even stay healthy. I think that soldier word is significant. I can imagine a soldier feeling the same way. He goes off with his brothers in arms to fight, and he gets injured in the first moment and gets sent back home while his brothers in arms are dying, risking their life, and maybe even his community and people who know he went are like, man, that guy's just a coward. He's acting like he's injured, and he should be on the front lines. I think Paul is telling them, no, Epaphroditus is being sent home as a soldier. Honor him. He's not running from the battle. He has risked his life. He has given much. He has been significant in my encouragement. Honor him. He's not an apostle. As far as we know, he's not a pastor. He's just Epaphroditus, a fellow soldier. He's a brother, and he's your minister in my need. As we consider and send out missionaries, as our church partners with those minister, missionaries, we have an obligation to see a text like this and ask ourselves, how do we do this? Right? How, do, how do we become fellow laborers? How do we stand with them as brothers and sisters who encourage and strengthen them in the faith and keep them ministering for the Lord? How do we financially make sure that they can stay ministering and go, don't get distracted by needs or lack of supply? The apostle's point here is that this is a sacrificial ministry by both Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi to take care of him. And he's using this as an example to not only encourage them, but I think clearly the Holy Spirit wants us and all churches of all generations to see this example and be like them. It requires us to recognize that our missionaries, and frankly, I would suggest to you, the churches of Christ throughout the world, 
are meant to be encouraged and strengthened by this church. Occasionally, we have the bittersweet opportunity to give away a servant of ours to another church. And I say bittersweet because that is exactly the right word. Any thoughts of giving away some of the faithful people in our church? And if I were just to name names, I mean, I have no doubt that God has incredible opportunities for service in this church. And when we see you leave, I will be super sad and disappointed that you're not going to be part of this church. It makes me sad to think that the Bacelles might leave our church to go serve on the mission field. How could we ever keep them back? Right, like this is, God's work is so much bigger than Crossway. And to recognize that we can send agents of this church to be fellow workers with people in Africa and to train pastors and godly men and women in Africa and raise up the church in Africa and strengthen the work of Christ in Africa. How could we ever hold back on that? We're partners. We're fellow laborers. We do this. This is who we are as God's people. God help us if we ever kind of build walls and keep all our money and all our people for ourselves. That is not partnership. But this might be measured in the life of a sweet elderly lady by just faithful prayer. Last week I had the humbling privilege after having mentioned the Christmas offering for our missionaries of having a little young person come to me and give me cash out of her own money for the missionaries. That's gospel partnership. And God is honored by that. I don't know what the Lord has gifted you to do. I don't know how the Lord is moving you. But it'd be really sweet if a missionary wrote back to this church and instead of an Epaphroditus name, yours was there. Thank you so much for sending them to us. Fellow worker, fellow soldier, a brother or sister in Christ, your messenger who helped me in my need. Thank you. We need to recognize that this type of partnership is expected by God. I would also add, as we read through this, that those who are workers determine to deeply love God's workers. To I use the word deep because I think we use the word love a little bit too much. I'm not sure deep actually makes it much better. I could just say love, and it'd be the right word. But, but we, it's, it's a sloppy word. It's just, I mean, I love cookies. Sometimes I love my dog. The way we love missionaries should be distinctly richer and deeper than that. Okay. I probably should give up cookies. I shouldn't love them. Those who determine um, to deeply love God's workers are the, the ones who follow the example of Paul and Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi. I want you to look at the words of affection in this text. Because it's not merely mechanical. It's not like, oh, they're a missionary, let's give them 100 bucks. This is, this is a relational work. Look at verse 26. He has been longing for you. This is how Epaphroditus thinks of his church. 
Continue on. He has been distressed. I get a kick out of this. He's been distressed because you heard he was ill. So again, probably a team of people went with Epaphroditus. Probably, again, to protect the money and to make sure the gift got, got there safely in case some tragedy happened. And Epaphroditus six stays there. The others apparently go home. And now Epaphroditus is concerned that the church knows he's sick. And he's concerned about their concern. Like, it hurts his heart to think that they are at home worried about him. I gotta tell you, I'm not very anxious about your anxieties. But Epaphroditus truly is. He's like, man, my church is probably praying for me. The man who led me to the Lord is in that church, and I can't imagine that he is not up late at night praying for me. I need, I need to let them know I'm better. And Epaphroditus is longing to be with them so that their, their concerns would be put to rest. And even the Apostle Paul, look at him. In verse 27 at the end, he says, God has had mercy and, and rescued Epaphroditus off this deathbed, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, I would assume that some of the sorrows that are there are some of the afflictions and the sufferings and the, the ministry partners who have abandoned him. And so he, he's had a lot of sorrows, and he's sitting there saying, this sorrow would have been laid on top of it. I thank God for not putting me under that sorrow too. I don't know how well Paul knew Epaphroditus, but I, again, we don't have a lot about him. And he's a messenger who brings money. He's a glorified postman. And Paul's deeply caring for him. Not because he's the messenger who brought him money, but because he is God's servant, his brother. Again, verse 28. I am eager to send him so that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And, and, and no one really has a clear answer for this, Paul somehow is anxious about this whole thing. Perhaps he doesn't want Epaphroditus to die on his watch. Perhaps he knows that it's causing the church more suffering, and so he's concerned about their suffering, and he wants to alleviate it like Epaphroditus does. But in any case, Paul sees the sending back of Epaphroditus, the reunification of him and his home church, as something that will give him relief as a shepherd over that church, an apostle over them. And then verse 29, this is actually an imperative, this is a command. Receive him with joy and honor. It's not as though he's just giving this example, like, look how fantastic the church is. He implies that their example is not only something for us to see, but we must follow. The implication would be, men like Epaphroditus, even today, must be honored in the church of Christ. That we would hold servants like Epaphroditus, who serve and work at risk to themselves, as men and women who should be lifted up and honored. Let me just kind of frame this out in, I think, two organized ways. The church deeply cared for both Paul and Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus knows this so much that he's anxious about their anxiety. So the church sends him. And it's not just like, hey, Epaphroditus is disposable. Like, send him, because if he gets sick and dies, if he gets beaten up, if, if, if he dies, we can send another. That's not the point. Like, they send someone they deeply care about. And now that he's sick, there's likely, based on both Epaphroditus and Paul's concerns about the church, deep sorrow 
about Epaphroditus. The church loves Epaphroditus. Again, look at how they care for Paul. If you look at the end of verse 25, he is your messenger and minister to my need. At the end of verse 30, he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The point isn't that they had to somehow have a, um, they, were, they were running short on what they were expected to do. It's that they wanted to do more, and Epaphroditus completes that more that they wanted. Coming back to chapter 4, we had read it initially. You see how the Apostle Paul considers the church in Philippi. It was kind of you, verse 14 in chapter 4, to share my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. That church cared about the apostle. And I don't mean they just had sentimental affection. Again and again and again, they care for Paul. They send messengers to Paul. They send finances to Paul. He just generically says, you've given me gifts. This church loves Paul. If you're wondering what God wants you to do in missions, but you're pretty sure he's not called you to the foreign field, he's at least called you to love God's workers. Whether it's an Epaphroditus in our church, whether it's a missionary we send overseas, whether it's some of the deacons within our church, you are called to love those who are fellow workers of Christ. You're called to sacrifice for them, to care for them, to nurture their spiritual good, to, to, to concern yourself with what has them in this life broken or hurting or needy. The church has a deep affection and a commitment to love God's servants. And vice versa, God's servants care for the church. I, mean, I, I know you caught it. Let me just run. I, I, I see about six times in this text where you see the, the servant Epaphroditus or Paul caring about the church. In the beginning of 26, he's longing for you. Again in 26, he's distressed because of your distress. At the end of verse 27, he, uh, Paul has sorrow for Epaphroditus, or he would if Epaphroditus passed away. Verse 28, he is eager to send Epaphroditus so that the church would have joy. He's anxious about the church in Philippi that they would get Epaphroditus back. It's a helpful, it's a helpful dissection of partnership. I think sometimes we consider, but maybe I'm equipping some of you who will be missionaries. I think sometimes missionaries go and forget they're supporting churches outside of the support they get from them. If the Lord ever calls you to missions or calls you to ministry, hear clearly the care Paul has for this church. He's concerned about them. He is thankful for them. He's worried that they get their servant Epaphroditus back he, he recognizes their rich ministry, and in chapter 4, he's thanking them. He actually identifies them as partners with him in the rewards that he will receive eternally because of their support of him. The missionary cares about those 
churches and partners who join with them and support them in care and finances and love. On a more simple level, can I just encourage those of you who are leaders or ministers on any level in this church, whether you're teaching in little theologians or ministering to our teens, that the love for the people you serve is vital to the goodness of your ministry. I vividly remember, probably 15 years ago now, hearing Alex Montoya say, if you love your people, you'll never preach a bad sermon. That needs a little dissection. He did it. He had like an hour. I'm not going to spend an hour telling you why that makes sense. But I think, I think one of those truths that energizes God's servants is care for the people they serve. It gives a gentleness to rebuke. It gives a diligence to our study. It gives a hope to our preaching. It leads us to pray for the reception of the ministry given. You're ministering to our teens, our children. I don't know, you might be able to do baby care without much love for the babies, but you probably should love the parents. If you have the joy of teaching small group or hosting it, don't give the Lord loveless obligations. Ministry partners recognize that partnership and they lean into it with a deep deep love that's a decision type of love and here's what i mean by that i I think there are times where we talk about love and it seems natural have you ever worked with junior hires i'm not trying to say our junior hires are bad they're junior hires you were one once. So just imagine what you were like. Would you have wanted to be your leader? I'm just, I was an arrogant punk. And you probably were some type of bad kid too. You know, maybe you're the quiet one that never answered anything despite the fact that the teacher or leader was trying to pull out answers like pulling teeth. Or you're the one always saying something funny. Or never sitting still. And that sweet teacher still loves you. Our church be filled with ministers like that. This church was. And again, I think we come to that command at the end for the church to honor its leaders. Particularly those who exemplify this affection and commitment for the message and ministry of Christ. As we, as we conclude our examination of this text, the apostle leaves us with I think an implication that the reason Epaphroditus is to be honored is because as he walks worthy of his calling, as he walks worthy of the gospel, as he walks worthy of his citizenship in heaven, those are all kind of the same concepts, I think, in the, in the epistles. As he does this, Paul emphasizes his sickness and, and cost. And, and kind of the, the background harmony to that is Paul's own costs. I mean, Epaphroditus went because Paul had needs. Paul's writing from prison. That's why he has needs. Paul ultimately gets killed for the gospel's sake. But he reminds him of Epaphroditus who doesn't have the capital A apostle title, who is just merely Joe Church member. 
And look at what he says about Epaphroditus. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death. Now please do yourself the benefit of interpretive schemes by not laying upon him this picture of him in a hospital bed with a good doctor. I mean, now you get an inf- infection, you go to the doctor, you get some type of antibiotic, and you're good. Like, you have to take it for 10 days, and after three, you're like, do I really need to finish this thing? Right? Like, we, we have such good care and such medical professionals. Some of the treatments that you would read, if you read how doctors medicated in that world, are horrific. I mean, just a few hundred years ago, we put leeches on people to suck out the bad stuff and killed them. So when you think of Epaphroditus on a sickbed, nearing death, it's not like he's like, hey, Luke, you're a doctor. You got this covered. It was a totally different world of doctoring back then. So you can imagine the helpless feeling of watching a sweet brother in Christ who's ministered to you dying on their sickbed and Paul's wanting them to know it, right? Like, he almost died. Look again in verse 30, he repeats it. He nearly died. Why, though? For the work of Christ. That's not insignificant. His point brings us back to this thought. Paul wants workers who steadfastly consider and choose to pay the price of ministry. Make say this, they're steadfast and being willing to pay the cost. The Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, come be a missionary. It's all good. He is saying, this man you sent almost died. And you should honor him. I want you to picture a family who is discussing ministry with a, maybe it's their daughter. I can definitely sympathize with this if in some years from now, my daughter's sitting down and saying, hey, my husband and I have decided we're going to go overseas to missions, that my heart will have one of those bittersweet reflections, like, you shouldn't go, you should stay and be close. I want you safe and I want you close. But you should do what God wants you to do, so you should go and stay close. I don't know how that works, but you should do both. <laughs> like, that's what my heart's going to want. And, and then they, they, like, add, and we're going to this really, really risky place where lots of missionaries have died recently. And all of a sudden, the you should stay gets a lot stronger. That is so far different than the expectation of the New Testament missionary. Epaphroditus almost died. Honor him would indicate that when we see men and women who are moved by the Spirit to go to places where there's personal risk, we should not hold them back. We should honor them. And if we honor them, what are more people going to do? Go to risky places. And you might think something like, but they'll die. Yeah. Do you remember the first example of living like a citizen of heaven? His name is Jesus. And we look at his death as the most consequentially good thing that has ever happened to humanity. And Jesus says, come and be like me. Take up your cross. We're like, yeah, but that literally, sometimes it is somewhat literally in the sense that they might die. So when families warn people like, hey, if you go, you're not going to have a good Christian school. 
and your kid will never learn to play football. And their academics might be kind of, yeah. And they're going to grow up kind of being weird because they're not going to really be native to that culture. They're not going to be native to American culture. They're just going to be nerdy. And you have family and friends calling people to not consider the cost and go, but to consider the cost so that they stay. That is simply ungodly. Did Jesus Christ consider the cost? Yeah, let me take it to Hebrews 12. More than anyone else, Jesus seems to recognize really clearly the cost coming. We have a song, I think, Born to Die. That even in Christmas, the shadow of the cross is not far behind. Okay, Hebrews 12, verse 2, calls upon us to consider Jesus, the founder and the one who completes our faith. And then it gives this little line here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let me just unpack that line there because I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus recognized the cross was coming, despised the shame, and did so because of the joy that was set before him. So it's almost like, if you think of it like a timeline, Jesus recognizes that his path is heading towards this moment of deep shame and death on the cross. And that on the other side of that is joy. You with me? Metaphorically in this timeline then, Jesus recognizes that the pathway to immense joy inevitably will require him to step into this moment of death on the cross and shame, according to Hebrews 12.2. So like a missionary who evaluates the, the, the cost that may come in missions, Jesus looks at the cost that will come in his death, in his shame, and it says he despises it. It's like this. If you said, Mark, if you walk across the stage, I'll give you a million dollars. That's all? You gotta be kidding me. Walk across the stage, I'll do that right away. That's the, the essence of this text in the sense that the Father telling Christ, walk across this path that includes the shame and the cross, and you will get the joy of eternal glory given a name above every name. And Jesus says, that's well worth it. Despises the cost, it's nothing to pay the price for the joy coming. So when we call upon missionaries or children or people within our church to value highly the expense, the sacrifice, we are calling them to a very un-Christ-like evaluation. In other words, what we should be doing is saying, value the joy. Value heaven. Value eternity. Value the honor when you are welcomed home by the Lord. Value that so that this does not cause you to shrink back in fear. So that this doesn't cause you to overvalue your children and undervalue Jesus. So that this doesn't cause you to hesitate to obey Jesus. Don't let the price overwhelm 
the prize. Jesus, undervalued, undervalued makes it seem like he got it wrong. Jesus did not consider the value of the cost as, an, uh, as a significant, too, co- too high cost to pay. And so he paid the price for the joy that was set before him. So as we consider missionaries, as we consider gospel partnerships, we should not be either hiding the sacrifice that may come, nor amplifying it to cause them to hesitate. But to evaluate soberly, it may be costly, but it's worth it. The Lord is worth it. Whatever he asks you to pay is worth it. Don't ever shrink from following Jesus. Don't, let, don't hesitate. Don't get off the path. Don't take a detour. Don't do anything that would cause you to jeopardize the joy of eternity. If you can think of yourself as, as three or four different people, you today are looking at the you of the suffering and the you of the joy of Christ's reward. This one who has the joy would say, the cost was so worth it to get to where I'm at today. That needs to talk to that first one. Say, don't let the cost scare you. Don't hesitate. Pay the price. As a pastor, it does make me a little nervous to uh, preach a message like this. I'm afraid half of you are going to be missionaries. I don't think that's God's plan, so I, I trust the Lord that he'll protect the church no matter what his plan is for your life. God is good. God is kind. Epaphroditus, who almost died, knows that to be true. Paul, who does die for the cause of Christ, knows that to be true. The Philippian church, who is impoverished and poor and gave away their wealth to the Apostle Paul and almost lost their precious friend Epaphroditus, knows that to be true. God is good. He would never call you to sacrifice out of forgetfulness or spite or a bad plan. He has joy for you. The sacrifice is worth it. As you reflect through this text, we should be looking at those who labor for the cause of Christ as partners whom we deeply love and we are determined to serve in love. And as we consider both them and ourselves, we look at the cost and we gladly own it. We don't shrink from it because we love eternity more than today. We love Christ more than ourselves. We love God's people more than we love ourselves or our possessions. We choose these values because they represent someone who's a citizen of God's eternal heaven. It's a faith value system that knows that when death takes us, there's better things in store than was ever before our death. And so we choose to live for eternity. If you're in this church, this text tells you you should see yourself as a partner with our missionaries with our ministers even within our church, with those who are teaching our children, with those who are overseas in Nairobi or India or Southeast Asia. You should look at these as gospel partnerships for which you're obligated to love deeply these missionaries, love these servants, care for them, be willing like Epaphroditus to risk your health for them, to give them so that they keep on serving the Lord. 
if you're not at the least praying, you don't love our missionaries. If you're not at the least reading their newsletters and considering how you can support them, then I would call into question whether you deeply love our missionaries. If you don't know who's working with our kids, it's hard for me to imagine that you understand the idea of gospel partnership. If you aren't praying for the deacons and the shepherds of this church, it's hard for me to believe that you actually love them. Ministers, if you're not praying for the children in your class, deacons, if you're not praying for the men and women of our church, pastors and those who want to be pastors, if you're not praying for your church family, do you truly deeply love them? Let's just start there talking to our God in heaven and asking for mercy and grace for his people is an easy first step for us all to begin. And then as you pray for that, ask the Lord to give you wisdom and ability to serve and care for and love and support those partners in ministry he's given to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the joy that you've given us. That regardless of the cost and the sacrifice, joy is not attained by circumstance, but through the Savior, and the precious gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can have a peace that passes understanding. We can have a contentment that comes through Christ who strengthens us. And in the middle of a world and a heart that will often believe and teach lies, you can correct our thinking. We can think about things that are true and good. Father, I pray that we would, like the Apostle Paul, count all things loss except for those things that cause us to gain Christ and be conformed to his sufferings so that we might attain the resurrection. Lord, I ask that you would sanctify and purify our goals and agendas and our desires, that your will might be exalted among your people and that we might pursue you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.